morning, folks. We can do better. Good morning. All right. Hey, welcome to Grace. Um, if you haven't turned there already, let's turn to the passage that Jay just read for us a few minutes ago. It's found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. It's Hebrews, chapter 10. If you've got a, a, a kind of a big print Bible like I do, it's page 870. Hebrews, chapter 10. We have been in the midst of a sermon series uh, on the new covenant, uh, the transition from the old covenant to the new, and uh, we have seen uh, all sorts of good things about it. We saw the panorama of the new covenant. We saw the, the provisions of the new covenant. We've seen the promises of the new covenant. And then last week, if you were with us, we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, part 1, of the preeminence of the new covenant. That is, the superiority of the new covenant to the old. This morning, we are in part 2 of the preeminence of the new covenant, and we will be covering Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18. After that, we will uh, be preparing for communion together uh, to share as a body, and then we'll close our service with a song. So Hebrews chapter 10, I trust that you're there close to it. Would you pray with me? And then we'll dive into the Word of God together. Father, we praise your name for your good and gracious to us. We thank you so much for the once-for-all sacrifice that your Son, Jesus Christ, has made for us. That there is no longer any sacrifice for sin necessary to be made. Because, Jesus, what you have done for us, taking on a, a human, hum, humanity, a human body uh, that has been prepared for you, you came down not to offer a sacrifice, but to be our sacrifice for sins. And we're so grateful for that. We're grateful not only for your, your death, but for your perfect life, uh, completely fulfilling the law for us. And we are grateful for your resurrection, your powerful resurrection as you defeated death and Satan and sin. And that you have paved the way for us to be uh, with you for all eternity. Father, we pray now that you would bless through your spirit the, the preaching and the teaching and the living out of your word. I pray that you would show us this morning that Christ is better. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said together. So I want to begin with a bit of a parable, a bit of a fictitious story, uh, a fable, if you will. And the story goes like this. There was once a young man, and uh, as the story goes, he met a young woman, and uh, they fell in love with one another. However, they lived in different cities, in fact, across the country. And so they talked on the phone and they Skyped and, and all those things that you do, FaceTime. But they were separated by, by many miles. Well, uh, as the story goes, they uh, had a quick relationship. They decided to get, to get married. And, uh, and so they, they did so. And this, this young man, all the while, while he was apart from his wife-to-be, he had a wonderful, beautiful photograph. And he carried that photograph of her with him all the time in his back pocket, in his wallet. And he would often take out the photo and gaze at it and, and marvel at her person and her beauty. And, and uh, he fell in love not only with her, but with her photo. And so they, uh, they got married and they went on the honeymoon and life began for them as a new couple. However, uh, the photo was still there, right? He still kept it in his back pocket and uh, he still enjoyed that. But he had the real thing. He had her. He was married. But then one day, as the fable goes, something rather strange happened. He started to, well, he missed the photograph. I mean, he really enjoyed those days of pondering and, and, and looking at the photograph. And so one day he stood before his wife and he clutched the photograph to his chest and he said, Honey, I've really missed your photograph. I've really missed the picture. In fact, I think that the picture is better than our marriage. So I'm leaving you and I'm going back 
to the, to the photograph. Oh, and he left clinging to it and kissing it passionately. And, well, that's, it's kind of a weird fable, right? And if it was real, we'd say, well, this guy's dipstick is a bit court low, right? He's kind of crazy. He's losing it. But, but here's the point. This is akin to what many uh, of whom the, the author of Hebrews writes to. Friends, that is similar to what they were actually contemplating doing. See, the author of Hebrews, who is really unknown to us, speaks to a group of Jewish Christians. That is, they were Jewish ethnically and religiously, and they had come to profess faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But under great persecution and pressure, likely from their fellow Jews, they were considering, they were pondering, recanting their faith in Jesus and returning both to Judaism and the Old Covenant. These folks, in other words, like the man in our story, they were thinking about trading in the real thing the reality of their faith, and going back to, well, a picture, an image. The author calls it a shadow of the reality of a relationship with God to their eternal peril. So he writes to them. He warns them, friends, don't go there. There is danger in doing that. And he encourages them to cling to Christ, to cling to their profession of faith in Christ, to cling to their obedience in Christ. And he writes to them, showing them the ludicrousness of going away from the new covenant and going back to the law. He writes to show them that Jesus is better, that the new covenant is infinitely better. So don't go back to the old, stick with the new. And he, he, he argues throughout the book, in fact, I won't take you there, but if you, if, you, if you go back and read Hebrews sometime, chapters 1 through 10 is basically this big theological argument that Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Covenant. And so he says, Jesus is better than the angels who gave Moses the law. Jesus is better than Moses himself, the mediator of the Old Covenant. He argues that Jesus serves a superior covenant, that Jesus serves in a superior heavenly tabernacle, and that Jesus himself is a better sacrifice than any of the Old Covenant animal sacrifices could have offered. And so the, the argument then in the book of Hebrews culminates in chapter 10 in the section that Jay just read for us. In fact, one commentator says of chapter 10 that chapter 10 expresses the very heart of the book. And so as we make our way into Hebrews chapter 10, we come to the crowning jewel of the author's argument. It culminates, it crescendos, crescendos his argument that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior. So I hope you're there with me, Hebrews chapter 10. Let's begin in verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, we see that the author speaks to insufficient sacrifices, insufficient sacrifices. Verse 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the author begins then by stating that the entirety of the Old Covenant the entire law, specifically the animal sacrifices, 
could never make anyone perfect. That is, they could never make anyone truly, eternally acceptable before God. And here's the reason. He says that the old covenant, and particularly the sacrifices, are a shadow. They're like a shadow, but they're not the true form of the realities that they represent. Now, we're familiar with shadows, right? We know how shadows work. Shadows show us the image or the figure of something that is real, but they themselves have no substance, right? You, you can't touch a shadow, right? It, it, it represents something real. In fact, just last week in God's providence, I was putting the girls to bed as I almost always do, and I was sitting there by the bed, and Sawyer has the bed right next to the seat that I I take, and I I read them stories, and we pray, and I sing songs to them, and so it was about time for bedtime to be over, and so uh, I was about ready to leave, and Sawyer said, Dad, that that shadow is scary, and and so I looked up at the ceiling in their room, and, and I said, oh, that shadow? She said, yeah, that's scary, and there's a, a nightlight in their room that just happened to be right behind me. And so guess whose shadow it was? It was my shadow, right? And so I said, look. You know, I'm kind of moving, doing a little dance, right? Look, it's me. You don't have to be afraid. It's, it's no monster, right? It's just me. I am the substance. Uh, I'm the reality, right? The shadow, well, it just indicates that I'm here, right? That, that, that I'm real. Similarly, Friends, the the author of Hebrews says that the old covenant sacrifices uh, pointed us towards the true sacrifice, towards the true reality of the forgiveness of sins that Christ achieved. But they themselves were just shadows. They point us towards the real thing, but they themselves can't produce anything in and of themselves. So verse 1. Next, in verses 2, 3, and 4, he continues to highlight just the insufficient nature of the animal sacrifices under the Old Covenant. Verse 2, Otherwise, he says, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But... In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Friends, the simple logic is this. If animal sacrifices, he argues, were actually able to make people perfect, if they were actually able to do something spiritually for those who offered it, then they would only have to happen once, right? One time would be sufficient. But friends, we know that that is not the case. To the contrary, he says, in actuality, the continual offering of animal sacrifices serves in reality as a what? As a reminder of the sacrificer's sins, right? It actually reminds them that what is happening with this animal dying doesn't uh, forgive my sins. Why is that? Well, we see it in verse 4. The author tells us it's because an animal's blood can't take away human sin. An animal's blood can't cover human sin. It merely withholds the wrath of God temporarily. And so a human sacrifice, not an animal sacrifice, 
a perfect human sacrifice is necessary, the author is going to argue, to atone for human sins. And then to that human sacrifice, he turns as we move from insufficient sacrifices to the submissive sacrifice of Christ, verses 5 through 7. Here in these short verses, the author does something that to me is just fascinating. What the author does is he takes the words of King David in Psalm 40. King David, the great king of Israel, who wrote Psalm 40, the author takes those words spoken by uh, King David and he applies them to the greater David, Jesus Christ. He says, those words that David wrote, Jesus actually spoke to God the Father at the moment of his incarnation. So just ponder this for a moment. What was going through Jesus' mind that first Christmas night. What was his attitude towards what was about to happen? Well, we learn in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, speaking to God the Father, but a body you have prepared for me. The human body that he was going to add to his divinity. In, in, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, that is Christ said this. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Friends, it is astounding that these were the words of Christ before his incarnation. See, see God the Father... Unlike Old Testament priests, God the Father didn't ask His Son to offer sacrifices, but to be the sacrifice. Jesus came to do God's will. In His willing submission, I willingly add my humanity uh, humanity to my divinity. I am willing to be this sacrifice. His willingness to do this is emphasized in these verses. Friends, you may be familiar with the wonderful set of books written by C.S. Lewis, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read them, read them. If your kids haven't read them, read them to your kids. They're wonderful. And, and in them we see many parallels to the gospel and, and the scriptures. But in the first, which then later became a movie, of course, uh, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, we see Aslan, this great lion king. He's the king of all Narnia. And, of course, he is a, a picture of Jesus. And in the scene I'm about to show you, uh, there has been a, a human traitor. And it's one of the four Pevensey kids. It is Edmund. He has betrayed his family and gone with the white witch. And so we see that Aslan, the true king of the forest, uh, agrees to die to take the penalty for Edmund's sin, if you will. And so he does that uh, at the hands of the white witch. He is murdered. And so this, friends, we're about to watch is the resurrection scene. And I want you to to listen to what Aslan says about his willingness to be a victim in this case. So let's watch this short clip together.
Aslan. What have they done? the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Edmund will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one. But not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go and little time to get there. You may want to cover your ears. Right. What a wonderful scene there of a willing victim, right? Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So we've seen the insufficient nature of the sacrifices. We've seen the submissive sacrifice that Christ is going to offer in his body. Next in verses 8 and 9, we see the supplanting sacrifice the supplanting sacrifice verse 8 when he said when he had said above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings these are offered according to the law the author adds then he added behold i have come to do your will he does away with the first in order to establish the second now what the author does is simply this he says remember these Verses I just quoted to you. When, when Christ said to the Father, you haven't desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices. And when, and when Christ said to God the Father, behold, I come to do your will. This is what was happening in reality. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The basic point of these verses then is that when Jesus spoke these words, he was actually doing away with the first covenant, the law, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. Interestingly enough, the word here in Greek, he does away with. He does away with the first. It's the word that means to abolish something, that Christ abolished the first in order to establish the second. And so we see the supplanting sacrifice that Christ offered. But next, in really the heart of this text, is verses 10 through 14. And in 10 through 14, we move from the supplanting sacrifice, the old covenant is out and the new covenant is in, to what I will call the singular sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice that Christ has made. Now, when you think about, uh, well, uh, we all hope that April comes soon. I don't know about you, but March is in. I'm really looking forward to April and the temperatures to rise. And uh, along with April comes a lot of uh, spring and a lot of other, other things, but uh, the Masters. Are you familiar with the golf tournament known as the Masters? Well, I think it comes every April. It, it is sort of the premier PGA golf event. And so when you think of the Masters, you likely think of names of, of uh, fantastic golfers, so like Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods. But friends, we don't often associate the Masters uh, well with this guy. His name is Doug Ford. Doug Ford. There he is winning the Masters in 1957. Uh, unless you're probably an avid golf fan, uh, the name Doug Ford just doesn't roll off your lips. However, he won uh, one uh, green jacket 
1975, and uh, he never uh, has won one again. In fact, not only did he ever not win another green jacket, but he didn't even, he hadn't made the cut in the Masters since 1971. And so, uh, sort of a one-time wonder. However, I find this really interesting. However, he is invited back to play at the Masters tournament every year. Do you know that? He has played every year since he won at the Masters tournament. And this is, uh, the reason is because they have this rule that basically once you win the Masters, you are invited every year back to the event, regardless of how good you are or how bad you are. If you're a champion, you're always welcome to come and play. And so here's the point. He gets to play in this wonderful tournament year after year because on one single occasion, on one single occasion, he won that tournament and won himself a green jacket. Friends, I, I speak about Doug Ford uh, to say this. Our salvation as Christians similarly is linked to a single event. To a single event, a singular sacrifice, if you will. As the author goes on to say in verse 10. Let's take a look at that together. The author continues, he says, And by that will... That is the will of God the Father, that God the Son would be a sacrifice. And by that will, we have been sanctified, set apart. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. And then what does he say, church? Once for all. Once for all. Here we see that Jesus is offering his sacrifice on the cross. Through it, we have have been sanctified. That is, positionally, we are set apart from sin and Satan and death and set apart towards God at our salvation. We have been sanctified. Also notice that the author describes this one-time offering. Well, it's just that. It is once for all. Friends, the death of Jesus is is a singularly sufficient sacrifice for sins. It never, ever needs to be made again. And so, Having stated this in verse 10, what we see in verses 11 through 14 is this marvelous contrast between the old covenant sacrifices and the new covenant sacrifice, between the old covenant priests and the new covenant priest, Jesus Christ. Let's read these verses together, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered... For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 4, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, I I wonder... Did you see the contrasts that were being offered here between Old Covenant sacrifices and the New Covenant sacrifice, between Old Testament priests and the New Covenant priest who is Jesus? Did, did you catch it? An old, an old Covenant priest, well, he stands, right? He stands at his service. But what about Jesus? He is said to sit down at the right hand of God. It, it is an emphasis that his once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient, Old covenant priests, well, they offer repeatedly the same sacrifices year after year. But Jesus is said to offer for all time, how many sacrifices? One. One sacrifice for sins. Old covenant priests, well, they offer sacrifices that can never take away sins. But Jesus has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified. And so we see here the author is screaming at us that Jesus is better, that his sacrifice is better, that his priesthood is better. But friends, before we move on, I want to point out something in verse 13. Why don't you take a look at your Bible or there on the screen behind me. Verse 13, it's worth noting. Let me ask it this way with a question. What will happen to those who don't personally accept this sacrifice? What will happen to those who don't bow the knee before the cross of Christ, repent of their sins, and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone in his once-for-all sacrifice for their sin? What will be the end of those who don't bow the knee to King Jesus? What will be the end of those who don't receive Jesus personally? Starting again in verse 12. But when Christ had offered an all-time, a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, and he is waiting. What does it say he's waiting for? He's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Friends, this is a reference to Psalm 110. And it speaks of a time when Christ at his return to the earth will judge his enemies. Those who don't bow the knee. Those who don't receive this perfect sacrifice for sins. First, friends, first, the first time uh, when Jesus came, he came as a sacrifice, right? He came to die for human sin. But friends, the second time he's coming back. And he's coming back not as a sacrifice for sins, but to judge those who don't receive that sacrifice. Friends, I need to be clear here. Are there those in this world, as we speak, that are considered an enemy of Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. There are people who are enemies of Jesus. They may not know that they're enemies of Jesus. They may think that Jesus is cool because like, hey, you know, he's a cool moral teacher or something. And and like they think they're fine. But friends, there are people in this world, those who are not born again, those who do not trust in Christ. They are his enemies, whether they know it or not. Uh, they, they disregard his word. They live a, a lifestyle that is blatantly opposed to the word of God and the word of Christ. They are his enemies. Friends, we don't want them to die that way. Correct? We don't want them to be his enemies. What do we want them to be? His friends, right? And so this message, this gospel of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice is what we must proclaim and preach. And so we, we, we've seen the singular sacrifice in verses 10 through 14. Notice in verse 15 through 17, uh, it is also a signaled sacrifice. It is a signaled sacrifice. Just in case the evidence, the argument of God the Son's superior sacrifice was not enough, The author now adds that God the Holy Spirit agrees. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Friends, if you've been with us, these verses are becoming familiar, are they not? Because these verses are out of Jeremiah chapter 31, one of the two key Old Testament texts that predict the coming of the new covenant. And so he, he quotes Jeremiah 31. And he says, the Holy Spirit bears testimony to this. This is just a quick aside. 
But here, uh, Jeremiah, who wrote these words, Jeremiah 31, he wrote these words. But who's the real author of those words? Did you catch it? God, the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? So we see this wonderful little glimpse into the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is instrumental in the writing of the Word of God. And so this is a signaled sacrifice. In other words, uh, the old uh, covenant in the Old Testament predicted that it would come to pass. And so we close then in verse 18. It is not only a signaled sacrifice, but this is really the author's main point. It is a sufficient sacrifice. A sufficient sacrifice. Verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of sin, uh, excuse me, where there is forgiveness of these, that is, where our sins are remembered no more and our lawless deeds no more, where there is forgiveness of these things, what does he say? There is no longer any offering for sin. Friends, this verse is the icing on the cake. It's the cherry on top of his argument. It's the logical conclusion that since Christ's sacrifice was submissive and supplanting and singular and signaled, it then follows that it is a sufficient sacrifice. Friends, let me just apply this before we prepare for communion. Um, I don't know if you've had this experience as a, as a Christian or not. I certainly know that I have, that, that in my mind, that I know that the Word of God is clear, that when I place my faith in Christ, that all of my sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood of the Lamb, that there is a sense in which, in which I am completely, eternally secure, that, that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, and that the forgiveness of sins, and that my evil and wicked and lawless deeds, God remembers no more. This is the heart of the gospel. But there are times, there are times when the ghosts of sin's past comes out to haunt me and you. There are times when we really wonder, when I think about the heinousness of my past sin and the heinousness, I'm sure, of my present sin and of my future sin. And I ponder those and the devil comes and talks to me and accuses me. He is the accuser of the brethren, is he not? And he reminds me of my sins and he gets me to wonder, is that really enough? I mean, can God really forgive sin like that? I mean, is it going to come out? Will people find out just how bad a sinner I am and what I have done? Can, can God really forgive that sort of sin? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I know it has happened to me. And so, friends, in those moments, we must cling to these truths found in the book of Hebrews, right? That God will remember our sins no more, that our lawless deeds are no more. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Friends, let me be, friends, let me be clear. Through Christ's obedience to God's will on the cross, new covenant Christians receive what we can never receive under the law, and that is complete and utter and total forgiveness of our sins. Dr. Albert Moeller concludes with these words on this wonderful passage in Hebrews 10. He says this. He says, This is why there's a table for the Lord's Supper and not an altar for sacrificing animals at the front of our church auditoriums. Christ accomplished everything necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus' offering was sufficient to forgive our sins once for all, he writes, his offering was sufficient to end all 
other offerings. And so now it's to the table, friends, that we must turn. We're going to do communion a little different than what we normally do. I'm going to ask for four men. 